GovCon Secrets Podcast, we take a deep dive into the government contracting space, where you'll hear from a variety of expert guests on strategy, pricing, benefits, business tactics, and all this to save you a ton of money, time, energy, and effort. I'm your host, Jim Campbell, former Marine and CEO of Axum Fringe Solutions Group. My goal is to redefine the benefits world with a brutally honest view of how benefits, compliance, finance, and overall contracting strategy mixed with my years of experience and expertise can it benefit you to deploy strategies to help your GovCon grow and win in the future, all the while without boring you to death. We're going to have fun. Let's start the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to this week's podcast. I have an exciting one for you this week. We have Greg Alexander, who's the founder and CEO of a number of companies, but most importantly here, Collective 54 and Capital 54. Greg's got a long history of uh, growing small businesses, making them successful, and then bringing other small businesses together and help them mind share. But uh, I don't want to steal from his thunder. It's a great episode and uh, fortunate to have Greg with us today. So, uh, Greg, thank you very much for joining. I'm looking forward to it, Jim. Thanks. Yeah, this should be fun, man. I, I sit on your uh, weekly calls every week, man. So I learn something every week. And then, uh, you know, shameless plug here. Uh, I'm a member of Collective 54, so uh, Greg's really helped me with our business and uh, going forward here. So uh, there's probably going to be some questions I'm asking for free advice so you don't bill me. The roles are reversed there. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Well, you know, uh, again, man, I really enjoy uh, the, the weekly meetings, obviously the dope that you keep providing us every week and your team has been great. But uh, why don't you go ahead and give a background about yourself and then uh, jump into Collective and Capital 54, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, great. So, again, my name is Greg Alexander. And um, professionally, my background can be best described as three chapters. So chapter one was a chapter when I was an employee. I got hired off the college campus and went to work for a company called EMC, which was a technology provider. At the time, they were a small company. When I left, they were a Fortune 500 company, and I kind of rode that wave for about 12 years. Um, I went back to school, got my MBA, which triggered me to start chapter number two, and that was my time as an entrepreneur. And I started a management consulting company called SBI. We specialize in business-to-business sales effectiveness. And I started, uh, scaled, and sold that in 11 years, uh, which propelled me into chapter three, which is a chapter I'm in right now. And that is, is as a investor, and I have uh, two companies that help me do that. Uh, the first is called Collective 54. This is the first mastermind community specifically for founders and senior leaders of boutique professional services firms. And our goal with that is to help you grow, scale, and exit your firm. And then the second company is called Capital 54, and this is my family office. The uh, proceeds from the sale of my boutique are in this family office, and we invest in these boutique professional services firms. So Capital 54 and Collective 54 are kind of kissing cousins, but that's what I'm doing right now. It's awesome. And uh, author. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. So I keep it I keep it on the desk. So why don't you talk a little bit about the boutique? Yeah. So I, I published a book, uh, geez, about a couple of years ago now called The Boutique, How to Start, Scale and Sell a Professional Services Firm. And uh, it's written like a cookbook uh, with a series of recipes in it. Um, it's written for the time-starved founder of a boutique professional services firm. And uh, you can turn to a, a section of the book. Uh, let's say you feel like tacos tonight. You can join to that <laughs> section and learn how to make tacos. If tomorrow night you feel like Chinese food, you can do that. 
And uh, it, it's broken into three sections, grow, scale, and exit, which are the three stages of a pro-serves life cycle. And uh, it's meant to kind of get to it and be a reference manual for founders to try to help them do what I did. And uh, it's done really well. We hit uh, Amazon bestseller list and our little niche, which was really great. And all of our members at Collective 54 use it regularly. Yeah, you know, it's funny because people make fun of me all the time. I always pump it, but I, I keep the the you know, the back and front covers to the chapters I'm reading. Yeah. And uh, a, a brother of mine, who's a pretty successful guy, had said, like, what the hell is with that book? And I said, I want to see if what you just told me is in this book. So I go to, like you said, it's a cookbook. I go to the pages. And I'm like, okay, that checklist, I'm failing. I need to figure it out, right? So, yeah, you know, and I and I, I live by it because, you know, when we first met, uh, I think I was candid. I, I had no desire to join a, a group like Collective 54, right? And I thought it was a waste of time. Um that's why I wasn't a growing successful company, I think, because uh, you made it very clear from the very first call. I've told you this. Um, you can either be king or you can be rich. And that, right. that that conversation has never left me. I think about it all the time. It actually it has changed the way I think in the last year. It was the last 14 months since I joined Collective 54. I've absolutely changed the paradigm of how I think about the business, how I treat people, how I treat our clients, what I look for, the engagement, the partnership. Yeah. Um, it is, it has that one meeting had transformed the way I think around being a business owner. And, uh, this book has a lot to do with that. Yeah. And that's the power of these mastermind communities. And you know, I like to say that, that, uh, scaling a boutique pro serve firm is just too much work for one person. It's a lot of work and the founder has to get good at discovering what it is that he doesn't know or what she doesn't know. And the King versus rich uh, metaphor that you talk about it sometimes and I was this way for sure so I'm preaching to the choir here sometimes we start our firms and we think we know it all and we our approach to success is brute force and I used to say I'm going to be successful because no one can outwork me but there becomes a point where working smarter <laughs> is more important than working harder so how do yeah. you start to work smarter well you, you join groups like ours and there's a lot of them um, and you you hear about what other people are doing and you pick up all these nuggets along the way. It really makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, and I think that's funny too, because when I first joined the very first meeting, right. And, and you had a guy reach out to me and I was kind of not in it a hundred percent, but I was willing, I was open-minded. I was like, wow, these folks that just talked in front of me had the same questions yeah. that I wanted to ask. Right. And like they came out and it was kind of like, okay, this was set up, but you know, it was, it was great. <laughs> it really because wasn't. I, I had the same experience or I was sharing the same experience as people that were going through it live, right? And, and as you know, the, you have a huge makeup of companies, older, younger, brand new, whatever. But there's some really smart people that I was able, all different industries I was able to learn from. Yeah. So, uh, and, and do you find that there's a lot of similarities regardless of industry type just because entrepreneurs have to go through the same life cycles? So what I find is, so our group, um, Collective 54, the reason why the number 54 is in the name it's because we're focused on a single industry. That's the professional services industry. That number 54 is the North American industry classification code for ProServe. So, and within that, there's lots of sub-industries, which is what Jim is referring to. So there's law firms, accounting firms, consulting firms, IT service providers, architects, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What they all have in common is they have the same business model. And what that what I mean by that is they're solving their clients' problems by packaging, marketing, selling, and delivering their expertise. 
they don't necessarily have a widget that they're selling that's coming off of a line. And there's a, that's a very specific business model. For example, those business models tend to be labor intense. So your talent strategy in a pro serve firm needs to be very different than it is in a product firm. So that's the commonality. And I do think that's really important that like if we had a bunch of people from the oil and gas industry, it wouldn't make any sense for them or from the software industry. It doesn't make sense for them. But people in ProServe, it makes a lot of sense for. Now, there's nuances within ProServe, for example. So can can a, a founder of a marketing agency learn something for someone like Jim who's in the government contracting business? The answer is yes, because they're in the same business. So you don't join a group like this to learn more about marketing. Our assumption is you're already great at that. That's your expertise. You join something like this because you want to you learn about business. You want to learn how to scale your firm regardless of the domain. Someday you might want to sell your firm regardless of the domain. That's the difference. And that's where one plus one equals five because people like Jim bring their expertise in their domain, which we don't have. He, that's what he's bringing to the table. We collectively bring our expertise on how to grow, scale, and exit a firm. And when you put those two things together, that's where the magic happens. Yeah, and, and that's so true, too, because regardless of who you've had speak, right, these people have come out and uh, had other people jump in and kind of fill holes to their presentation or whatever it is. And I was like, this is phenomenal. I just got $20,000 of resource that I'd have to pay an attorney for right. in, in, in five minutes of hearing people yeah. collaborate, right? Yep. So that, that was huge for me. And I say it all the time. I tell people, I refer people. Obviously, now we have some GovCons in the group and people bring it up to me all the time. What are you getting? Jim, what are you getting out of this? Because it's not GovCon specific. And I said, you're missing the point. It's not supposed to be GovCon specific. It's supposed to be small, mid-sized business specific. That's right. And, uh, and ProServe in particular. And ProServe, absolutely. Yeah. And, and government contracting, right? I mean, there's no, yeah. no better definition than ProServe, right? Now, you have IT services. You have people that clean bases and all this other stuff. But the professional services model in IT... It's butts and seats. Right? Yeah. That's how they have to make money. They have to meet, whether they're IT, in the intelligence community, it has to be butts and seats. It has to yeah. be people doing the job. And, um, you know, maybe you have a different view in it, but what I've always seen, and as time has gone on, it's gotten harder to get the right butts in the seats to do the yeah. job or deliver as you want. So I, I sit back and I'm like, man, this, this hiring pool, this talent pool keeps shrinking on me somehow. Right. And, and everybody else can't can't have the same problem. Then I found out they do have the same problem. Yeah. And then, you know, you go to a group like Collective 54 and they're they're voicing it. Yeah. And it, it's very cyclical. I mean, right now, unemployment's at historically low levels. So the labor pool is tight. Um, and in some sub markets, maybe yours is one of them. It's even tighter because of the level of demand. Um, you know, some would say we're recording this in the end of July or actually today's August 1st of 2022 that maybe we're heading into recession. If that's the case, uh, unemployment will go up and the, the labor market might get, um, you know, a little bit more favorable from us, not only from a, a quality of person available, but quantity and wage level as well. But, you know, you raise a really good point, which is if you're in the professional services space, you're in the people business. I mean, 80% of your cost is going to be labor cost. So getting a really strong employee value proposition, like why would I work for Greg Alexander? If I can't answer that question and make it very compelling vis-a-vis -vis all the other alternatives this person has in front of them, I'm not going to be able to scale. Professional services firms have two value propositions. 
They have one that's based on the client. So why should the client hire me? And they have one that's based on the employee, which is why should an employee work for me? And sometimes we forget the employee value proposition. And if you work in a product company, you know, if you're making Teslas, <laughs> so, you know, you don't need that as much because what are people buying? People are buying the automobile. You know, when, when you're in a services business, what are they buying? They're buying the team. So we, we can't forget that employee value proposition. It's, it's central to what it is that we do. And that is so huge because in the GovCon space, a contractor has to bid to win these awards, right? So they have to go out, they have to show their technical capabilities, their staffing plans, all this, right? It's a very detailed process. Let's say they win and they are, okay, now I just have to hire a hundred people. I don't know to do a job I signed up to do. And they have to do it very quickly, right? They have to start delivering and all this other stuff. And you have the really big companies that have massive benches. You have the Lockheed Martins, the Northrop Grumman's. They, they've been doing this for a long, long time. But the individual small to mid-sized business doesn't have those capabilities. So, you know, it, have you seen, I, and again, I'm just kind of pulling you here, across all the small to mid-sized businesses here, that there's this worry about their talent pools or that they're, they're struggling to find the right people and grow their firms aggressively. Yeah, I'm seeing that right now for sure. And what's what is indicating that this is a real issue, there's been a surge in interest in a concept called RPO. Mm. RPO stands for, for recruit process outsourcing. So firms like yours and others, I would imagine, in the GovCon sector realize that recruiting is this thing that needs to get turned on and turned off, you know, fairly easily. And and that example you just gave, all of a sudden I got to hire a hundred people, which which means I probably need two or three thousand in my candidate <laughs> pool, right? So you know how do you do that internally? You know that's really hard to do. If you can contract with a provider of RPO, you know they're they're built for that, and you turn them on, and you know within a couple of days they're in market recruiting the people that you need. And I have seen quite a surge in demand for that. And not just in GovCon, I'm seeing it across the board in, in some of these other kind of hot sectors that are driven by those, you know, project style uh, engagements. So that's part of the beast, right? And that's why, you know, scaling a boutique pro serve firm is so hard because those are the nuances of it. You know, if you're working for Apple and you're making iPhones, you know, you probably know what the demand for iPhones is going to be, you know, two, three years out. You know, when you're running a small professional services firm in the government space, if you can see past six months, you're doing well, <laughs> right? It's guaranteed there's a budget to pay for it, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so yeah. matching, you know, revenue with expenses is particularly hard. Yeah. You know, and I think the other thing that I, I always struggle with and I'm, I'm always going to is the focus on the employee. Like you said, there's this, there's this focus that you have to have the right benefits. You have to have the right pay scale. Yeah. You know, with uh, COVID hitting, it was work from home. It was all of these other things. And, you know, now, now the employers are like, what do I do? I've got to put bodies on the job. I have to perform. I can't manage to them anymore. And I have to have benefits in a, you know, a constantly increasing cost market. What do I do? Right. And, yeah. and the talent, like you said, the talent pools, but you can only recruit so much. So that RPO is a great option and people should probably look into it more. Yeah. And where do you find the financing? Like, right. The, the other thing is that comes up all the time in, in small businesses. Where do you kind of find the financing to get that project up and running? 
and started. Yeah. So you have the people dynamic, then you have the money dynamic. Yep. So the, the good news is there's plenty of capital available. Um, now, how you structure your deal and do you use debt? Do you use equity? And, and what flavors of each is, is an interesting thing. My preference would be, now, if you're going to go win a big deal that's going to tap the coffers, then this might not work. But my preference is uh, running a lean shop so you have plenty of free cash flow that you can organically grow and self-fund. Um, that would be my preference. Now, if you can't do that, I always advise founders to never give up equity unless they absolutely have to. So then the next source of financing would be, which would be debt. And debt has really evolved. For example, there's private lenders now that have different lending standards than walking down the street and, and knocking on your bank's door. Um, right. There's all kinds of government programs, small business administration, et cetera. There's all kinds of interesting um, debt options available to you. And, and for those that are listening to this podcast, if you're a founder of somebody in the GovCon space, you know, it's, it's your responsibility to make those relationships and to set those agreements up ahead of time so that if you do grow much faster than you thought and you need access to that capital, it's, it's readily available. And then, of course, on the equity side, you know, the private equity space is, is really interested in your segment. And they're interested in it because the government has huge budgets. They spend lots of money and well-run firms in your segment are very attractive to private equity firms because they feel as if they could put their investment capital to work and generate a nice return. So it's kind of a waterfall. I, I would say to answer your question, where do you find the capital? Run a lean shop and try to self-fund. If not that, then go to debt and all of its flavors. If not that, then go to equity and all of its flavors. That makes a lot of sense. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a catch-22, right? You can go from one topic to the other, but we started with people and ended up with money, and then it all comes back to, yeah. hey, these are problems that all small to mid-sized businesses are facing right now, yeah, right? And, and, sure. uh, and I, I get a huge kick out of just turning something small, like a small return back to a client. Somebody sees something in there, hey, we had X expense and you gave us B back. We're psyched, right? Yeah. And and I think that should be the focus for everybody. But in the GovCon space, the government comes out with a budget and they want every single penny of that dollar spent. Well, these contractors are not short on that, right? They, they have massive costs and ramp up costs. So the people, the, the financial structures, all of that is extremely important to your point. Get it done in front, right? Be yeah. way in front of it. Because if you play from behind, you're not going to be able to catch up or deliver. You know, I got a question for you that I that I am intrigued by. You know, we're in an inflationary environment right now, and part of that is wage inflation. Yep. And the the members of Collective Fifty Four that don't serve uh, the government, they're able to increase their prices to their clients, and it's a simple conversation. Hey, my costs are going up, and they show them the data. And if you want the, the A team, this is what it costs me. So here's what I got to charge you in order to earn a reasonable profit margin. And right now, most clients are accepting the increases in pricing because of the rising cost. Um, in the government world, is that doable? Not at all. No, it's a great question. So <laughs> you, you go back for these things called equitable adjustments, right, or contract amendments and say, hey, the cost of goods and services, government says, you and everybody else, right? Like they, they have a budget. They can't get outside of it. Um, healthcare cost goes up 30%, figure out another way because wow. your, dollars, your dollars are committed. And that's why 
you know, at Axum, I think one of our biggest things is strategically, how do we meet you where you need to be and then save you? Let's yeah. start at X. You, you know you're going to be at X. Let's work our way back, better programs, better strategies, better cost structures. If there's a savings in there, we'll find it. Mm-hmm. But you can't go the other way and just say, I'll increase my cost or I'll ask for more. Yeah. That makes scaling at GovCon quite a bit harder than somebody who is in the private sector for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, we'll go right into that. You know, the, the, the model is grow, scale, exit. And in GovCon, it is harder because you have, just like you had said, it's defined and there's limits to what you can do. So we have this model where um, we talk to clients all the time. Decide if you're go, no go, right? Know what you're going after. Know what you're really competent at, what you're the best at to deliver on. And then third, are you financially prepared to handle it? Let's say you win. Can you can you grow? Can you do this? We'll help you deliver, but can you take on the work? And um you know, that's definitely different than the non-GovCon world. But, you know, kind of talk to us about the model behind ProScale Exit. Yeah, well, the, a, a boutique ProServe firm, which, by the way, for those that are wondering what the word boutique means, it, it usually means between 20 and 250 employees. And just some data for you. There's approximately 1.5 million professional services firms in the United States. Um, it's the second largest category, uh, segment, I should say, business segment in the U.S., trailing only oil and gas, employs a little over 10 million people, and there's $2 trillion per year spent on professional services. It's just an absolute, it's a massive market. Monster. However, only a little over 4,000 firms have actually reached scale, meaning more than 250 billable employees. That's one quarter of 1%. So 99 plus percent of them are in this boutique category, and they're all trying to do what that one quarter of 1% did. And when I decided to launch Collective 54, because I was one of these people that had a successful exit and people were calling me saying, hey, how'd you do it? I started studying what all these folks are doing that have accomplished it and said, you know, what's the missing ingredient there? Like, why were they able to do it? But only one quarter of 1%, why can't everybody else do it? And that's the whole basis for that. And what I learned is that there's a natural life cycle from cradle to grave of one of these firms. It's approximately 15 years, and it's broken down into three stages, and about five years in each stage. There's the growth stage, which is kind of post-startup, but pre-scale, meaning you kind of know who your customer is, you know what service you're going to provide, you know you you have a few employees. Like you're not at risk of going out of business, it's, you're way beyond the one-man, you know, shingle type, but you're still growing. You're, you're doing more of what you're already doing. So that's that category. It's a very important category. A lot of people never make it out of that category. Then there's a moment in time where you leave the growth stage and go to the scale stage. And scale is, okay, I don't want to just do more of what I'm doing. I want to do what I'm doing more intelligently. I want to do it at less cost. I want to expand my margins. I'm the founder and I'm tired of working 70 hour weeks. You know, I need to build a team. You know, it's just scaling, like I say, is too much work for one person. So I need to like really implement scaling activities, repeatable processes. You want to get some sleep? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's that stage. And that's a really tricky stage because this is when the founder comes to this question. Do I want more than a lifestyle business? It's a very personal question because 
you don't have to scale. You can run a small services business and have a great lifestyle. But you're never really going to put a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs used to say. You know, it's not going to be something substantial. So there's a group of entrepreneurs, and Jim, you're one of them, and I'm in this category. This is a sickness, I think, <laughs> where a nice little lifestyle business just isn't enough. Our ambition is greater than that. We want to really go for it. We want to look back on our life when our life is coming to an end and say, boy, I really accomplished something. And that requires scale to make that happen. And it's a different playbook. It's almost as if you're hitting the restart button and you're running a different firm. So that's that section. Then as you approach retirement or maybe even earlier than that, like I sold my firm when I was 37, you enter, I'm sorry, 47, you enter the exit stage. And that is now you now you don't just have a firm, you have an asset. You're no longer thinking about the income statement and how much income you're making. You're thinking about the balance sheet. What is my firm worth? And here you start thinking about generational wealth. So maybe I want to retire. And in order to retire, I need to sell my firm to generate the funds to retire. Or maybe I've got kids and I want to leave a legacy to my children and set them up and change the trajectory of my family tree. Well, most founders and entrepreneurs have the overwhelming majority of their net worth tied up in their firms. So they have to liquidate it in order to turn it into cash. And selling a services business is really hard to do. Um, it can be done. And, and we've had we've been around for two and a half years and we've had 10 exits, which I'm really proud of. And these it's been so great to have a front row seat and watching these yeah. entrepreneurs do this. But there's a certain way you have to do it. There's a playbook for this. It's very different than a product company. Professional services is very different. So that's the cradle of the grave. Five years, grow. Five years, scale. Five year exit, roughly. Your mileage, your mileage may vary. I, I went cradle of the grave in 11 years. We had a member sell last week. He had his business for 32 years. He never wanted to sell. But then he, then he, then he got sick. He got sick and he said, oh, you know, maybe I need to smell the roses here a little bit. So that was his reason for selling. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it unfolds. I'll never forget. You actually said one time, whether you want to or not, everyone exits, right? You, yeah. All right. So, and, and that, that's another thing that hit me, man. You get, you always drop these pearls that I hold <laughs> on to these things because, um, you know, I've always said, I'm never going to retire. Right. I'm just one of those guys. Yeah. If I retire, I'm going to end up in the loony bin. They're boxing me up. They're putting me away. I just I can't do it. But on the other hand, you, you don't get out of this game yeah. for free. Right. It's going to cost something. Right. And I don't want to be the guy that leaves a company behind with no direction. So, you know, I was forced to then start to look at management. I was looked at, you know, forced to look at how is the company going to survive if something happens to me? All the things that you had talked about and grow up. So then I think we hit scale stage. At that point in time, I grew up. And then, you know, I look at this for our clients and I say, how can I help you, right? Like, where's your grow up stage? Some of them are way past me, right? They're 30, 50, $80 million firms, but they might be in the 8A program where they're guaranteed a certain amount of, you know, leniency, right? And it's a matter of like how much revenue they're going to get. But what happens after the eighth year? And they have to go out and free an open market and compete. They get they get vulturized, right? They just have like yeah. the birds of prey come down and pick their firms apart. And they didn't have a strategy to scale after that. They grew and it took eight years, but they couldn't scale, right? And now they can't exit because now they can't compete. They don't have a strategy. They don't have the finances. 
They don't have the bodies yeah. in place, the structure in place to, to exit yeah. properly. So um, that's a very important model that I have talked to people about regularly. How are you going to grow, scale, and yeah. exit? And um, I, I think from just our meetings, you, you've seen I've, I've kind of changed yeah. tune here, right? I'm, I'm, I listen. I work really fast. And I want to do the right things quick, but I'm quick to fail. Like if I fail, okay, great. I missed that. How do I fix it and get back on the right track quickly? You know, there's a lot of um, parallels to your time in the military. I think, um, you know, we were having a conversation earlier about recruiting. You could argue that the military is the greatest recruiting engine in the world. And they take in this raw material, these, these young, brave men and women, and they, through their, development program, they turn them into these, you know, sophisticated officers, um, you know, of, and with massive amounts of responsibility and the most adverse conditions you can imagine. And that's why I'm fascinated by it, because in comparison to that, growing, scaling and, L and exiting a professional services firm is a piece of cake. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, 100%. I tell that to people all the time. There's nobody shooting at me today. Life is really good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. On the recruiting side, I think there's much to be learned there. Like how, how do they get, you know, an 18-year-old kid who just graduated high school into the system and then 40 years later, you know, the person's an incredible human being. It's unreal what they do. I'm still trying to find, I'm trying to find that lying bastard gunnery sergeant that told me everything was going to be great. Let me find that guy. <laughs> I, uh, you know, you're right though, because um, there is, I talked to an airline pilot or she was a, uh, became a pilot commercially after she used to fly F-14 Tomcats. She's a badass, right? She's flying off the deck of aircraft carriers and everything. She explained to me, and I didn't know this about naval pilots, especially fighter pilots. They had another job. She actually had a like logistics job that she had to manage people in the air wing wow. while she was managing the stress of taking off the deck of an airplane or aircraft carrier and landing on this thing and then pulling G's and everything it does to your body. And I was like, what made you get into that? And she goes, no, no, no. I wanted to be a pilot. I had to do this other job. Yeah. It was part of my, and I, I was like, wow, you can't do that in the business world, right? You're getting sued, you know, but you're right. It, it definitely is a recruiting job. And uh, I think I got to find out that I got to find out that mixture. I got to find out what they use. That secret sauce. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I got to find what people are passionate about, feed off of it, and then sell them a bill of goods, I think, because once they're <laughs> in the machine, they can't get out, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I, you know, and I know uh, I've gained a lot. I know other people gain a lot, but if you could, you know, in summary, what do you think a company should should look for as they're in, in the business of growing? Obviously, they're pro serve. What should they look for um, in their life cycles? Like you said, it's five years for growth, scale and exit. But are there markers Are there street signs? Are there things they should pay attention to? Yeah, it's a great question. I get asked this all the time. And allow me a leeway, a little leeway here to give you the answer. So the first thing the founder needs to do is he or she needs to look in the mirror. And what I have found is that the rate of growth of the founder, personal growth, dictates the rate of growth of the firm. So if you're a founder and, you know, maybe you're incredibly curious, you've got a high risk tolerance, you're always learning new things, you're trying experiments, uh, you're surrounding yourself with the right people internally and externally. 
You're a great problem solver. You're adopting, locating and adopting best practices. That type of founder is going to do really well. The firm is a reflection of the founder. So that culture will be set by the founder. And those, those pro-serve firms, and we've got you know, a few hundred members now, so we've got a pretty good sample size. The ones that are growing revenue and profits above the mean, that's the thing they have in common. The, the firms that are struggling, they tend to have founders who always say things like, well, that won't apply to me, or I already do that, or I already know that, or I don't have time for this. You know, they, there's a series of uh, just obstacles of growth. And it's cliche, but it's true. There's no better investment than an investment in yourself. And someone who's an owner and founder of a business has made a choice. They made a choice to go into business for him or herself. It's a hell of a lot easier just to go to work for the man. But you decided not to work for the man. So be convicted in your decision and really go for it and be vulnerable and self-aware so that you can get really good at figuring out what it is you don't know. This is the main thing. Can you figure out what you don't know? Even myself, and I've, you know, I've gone through this cradle to grave, but there's still things I don't know. I'm still, you know, I could have retired at 47 and I'm like, you, Jim, I would have went crazy. I mean, there's only so many rounds of golf and only so many steaks you can eat. So, and I'm still learning stuff all the time. I, it's the reason why I love Collective 54 the way I do is because I learn things from the members. And that's the thing that I would tell you. If, if, you're, if you're listening to this and maybe in, inspired by it, you want to accelerate your growth rate, maybe someday you want to exit your firm, challenge yourself. How, how much more capable am I right now than I was this time last year? And can I articulate why? Like, what did I actually do? Was it intentional or did it happen by accident? And I would advocate for it to be intentional. And there's all kinds of things you can do. You can read books. You can listen to podcasts. You can join groups. You can join trade associations. You can go back to university. I mean, the list is endless. Um, so it's not a question of, you know, other materials available. They are. The question is, are you disciplined enough to make this a priority in your life? Or are you just going to run around and be reactive and put out fires? That's the main thing. No, that's huge, man. That's huge. Yeah. And everybody talks about work-life balance. And I tell everybody, it doesn't exist. If you're a small business owner, it doesn't exist. You either go in, all in, and you kick ass or don't and go get a job where you're given a couple weeks vacation. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be a loving parent and a loving spouse and all these other things. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means when it comes to the business, that's what you do, right? That's right. And and I am the worst business owner in the face of the planet. For the first I don't six, know about that. Well, for the first 6 years of this business, right? I struggled. I and I tell people this candidly. I stepped on every single landmine. I wasn't paying attention to people giving me advice. It's not that I was being ignorant or, you know, lacking humility. I was moving so fast. I didn't open my ears. Right. And I, I want to help other people much like you not make those same mistakes. So we have young guys in the firm coming up, young gals in the firm that ask questions. Where can I be of value to you? Right. And it's funny because we just had our all hands away. And one of my um, team members came up to me and said, hey, I'm starting this business with my husband and we're doing this, this and this. And I pulled it open and I, I pulled up the boutique and I looked in there and I said, here's chapter six. I want you to read this. <laughs> I said, if you can answer the questions at the end of this. And she said, 
oh my gosh. She goes, where do I get that book? And I said, I've got a couple. I'll send them to you. So yeah, so she's now, she's now digesting and she's reading and um, you know, her and her husband are setting up this side business to get their side hustle going. And I think it's phenomenal, but it was one of those things where I said, I can learn something here and I can take a step back to where you are and I can give you this book so you don't make the same mistakes I do. And that's, I think that's the key. Yeah. And that made you feel good because you were contributing to a young person's dreams, right? And and we've all like I in Collective 54 in the boutique, I, I say you need four people on your team. You need a role model, you need a mentor, you need a peer, you need a coach. Your personal team. And if you don't have those people, then there's something missing there. A, a role model is someone you don't know and you don't have access to, but you admire from afar and you model their behavior. When I had my firm, it was a consulting firm. And the, the grandfather of the management consulting industry was a guy by the name of Marvin Bauer. Marvin Bauer took over for James O. McKinsey and created McKinsey as we know it. So mm. I read everything I get my hands on about Mr. Bauer, and I modeled my behavior after him. A mentor is somebody who doesn't have any skin in the game. There's no conflict. It's not your boss. It's not a consultant. There's no money or politics or anything involved. They're just somebody who has been there and done that. And out of the goodness of their heart, they're willing to help you. And the purity of that relationship is, is so important. A peer is someone who's literally in the seat you're in right now, similar company, similar problems, similar opportunities, similar challenges. And it's just so wonderful to be able to say, hey, Joe, I'm stuck on X, Y, Z. Have you been here before? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what we did. Don't do this. Do this. That's so helpful. And then the coach is usually the boss, is you know someone who can coach you in the moment as you're struggling with someone. And that's the role that the founder plays for their employees. Greatest compliment I ever got when I had my firm was they called me coach instead of boss. When someone called me boss, I cringed. Yeah, absolutely. When someone called me coach, I, I lit up. So another takeaway for your audience is make sure you have those four people on your team. No, that's huge, man. Um, it kind of makes me think like, I got I to gotta tighten my personal net pretty too soon, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I had a had and have very honestly, a massive ego, right? Because I said, I don't, I don't ever ask for autographs. There's nobody that I, I, you know, I really just want to sit down and say, Hey, give me a day of your time or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And then, um, and it was because I want to develop this myself. I want to take the punches. I want to make the mistakes. I want to, so I can be better for somebody else in the future. Um, especially, you know, your kids, you know, you want to make sure that yeah. you're doing the right thing for your, your family. But after being a part of Collective 54, I've personally reached out to five different individuals and said, hey, can you help me with? And I think I've referred, you know, a couple of these names to you in the past, mm -hmm. you being one of them and, and some other folks. Mm -hmm. But I've asked direct, very direct questions. How can I become better? What, what am I missing? Whether it's personal, professional, whatever it is, I, I have no ego about this. And yeah. it really started to change that ego. I can still have it. I still don't want to idolize anybody, but I do know, I know I need a coach, a mentor, right? I need to bounce things off peers. And that's been massively enlightening for me. That's just yeah. me being a small business guy. You know, when I was in your seat running my boutique, I also had a, a big ego and I had a mentor of mine tell me this, and this has really stayed with me. It's one of those things I never forgot. Ego and vanity are different. Ego is healthy. Ego, ego is caring what you think about yourself. 
So you look in the mirror and what do you see? Vanity is the negative. Vanity is I'm doing all this because I, I care what other people think of me. Unfortunately, today with social media, we're living in this really inauthentic world <laughs> where everybody's making posts saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I think sometimes, and I didn't I didn't understand the difference between ego and vanity when this mentor pointed that out. I thought they were the same. And what I realized once I, he taught me that, as I did everything in my power not to be vain, and I'm, I'm sure I'm still slightly vain, but I've done everything <laughs> in my power not to be vain, but, but I've really embraced an ego. An ego is a good thing. You know, I was talking about personal development. That's an investment in myself. It takes an egotistical person to want to make a personal investment, actually care who I'm becoming more so than what I have been. Yeah. And so a healthy ego is a good thing in my view. That's excellent. Yeah. And, and I think more business owners, if they look at it like that, it actually helps with their growth scale exit model because they're yeah. taking that investment in themselves. They're taking a holistic view of this, the landscape and saying, these are the investments that need to be made, whether it's time, right. personnel, whatever it is. So, um, look, man, I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I know we beat up some of your time here. It was massively valuable to me. I know the folks are going to really enjoy it. But, um, you know, if you could leave with one parting shot for a small to mid-sized business that wants to grow, scale, and exit, what are, what's one thing that everybody should focus on? One thing. I'm going to quote the great 20th century philosopher, my dad, <laughs> Rennie Alexander. And he used to say to me as a kid on the ball field, and it still applies today. I have this printed and I carry it in my wallet. How far you go is based on how bad you want it. That's awesome. So that's what I would leave with your audience. How far you go is based on how bad you want it. I'm going to look up in the, the books of philosophy and make sure that your dad's quoted somewhere, right? Because <laughs> that's, uh, that's outstanding. No, and, and that is 100% true. 100% true. So uh, I knew I threw you on the spot there, man, but I knew you'd have something for us and uh, greatly appreciate the time, bud. Okay. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks. Thank you.